Good morning. Good morning. Uh, I am very glad to be with you in the gathering of the peer, the church, the peer this morning once again. It's been a couple of years, and before that, four years prior. Uh, so, me and my family were missionaries in Croatia, planting a church in the country of Croatia for over three years, and uh, health needs brought us back here. We're working through some of those health needs. We're seeing recovery. We're very thankful that the Lord is providing answers to prayer. We're still waiting patiently on the Lord. That's our testimony today is to trust in the Lord and in the power of His might, to lean not on our own understandings and in all our ways acknowledge Him and He will make our path straight. Our path doesn't make a lot of sense right now, quite honestly, as a family. And so we have to rely on God's promises that He will lead us in the direction that He has for us. I'm Pastor Kurt Beacons from Maranatha Bible Church. Greetings from Maranatha Bible Church in Comstock Park. Maranatha means come quickly, Lord Jesus. And that's what we sang about. Uh, we also sang about uh, the church in various ways and forms. One of those being that we will know we are Christians by His love. One of the other marks of a, a church is that they will know we are Christians by our character. That's from 1 Peter 2, 11 and 12. They will know we are Christians by the truth that we stand on. Paul told his apprentice, Timothy, young Timothy, he told this, I'm writing these things to you, hoping to come to you before long, but in case I'm delayed, I write so that you will know how one ought to conduct himself in the household of God, the pillar and support of the truth. That's what we stand on. We stand on this word. This is the authority for our life. This is the authority not just as individuals, but as a corporate body that gathers together. And that's what we're going to talk about this morning is what is the church and what does it do? So in Acts 2, that's what we'll spend most of our time, we will look at what did the very first church in history, right after it was established, Hours after Pentecost, what did they do? It's just an example. They were still primitive. They didn't have appointed elders and deacons yet. They were still working under the apostles' leadership. But there's a lot for us to learn. So we need to look at what is the church. And this is confusing in our day and age because one recent study shows that there's roughly 350,000 churches in America. 24,000 of those are Roman Catholic or Orthodox, leaves another 314,000 Protestant churches. More than half of these churches have less than 100 people. We're in good company here at the pier. Where I spent time in Europe, and Stephen as well, we would know that a church of 100 would be a large church. A church of 150 would be a megachurch. So we need to know what does the Bible say about a church, not just how we individuals see what we think is the church. Because if we went off of that, we would be in trouble. Churches themselves see themselves very differently. They might advertise themselves in a variety of ways. There's, there's rainbow flag churches and mega churches, and we're a simple church. We're a house church. We're more liberal. We're more seeker-sensitive. College church. Come, college. It's, it's, 
there's churches that divide based on denomination and, and makeup and race and, and preference. There's churches that now are atheistic churches. How do you have that? It's an oxymoron, yes. There is even the church of Satan. Even recently, there's the growth of a newly formed denomination, came out of Denver, centering around marijuana and its uses, called the International Church of Cannabis. That's their sacrament. This is scary stuff. It's laughable, but this is, this is uh, scary stuff to base what we see the church as on the foundation of not the prophets and the apostles, as Ephesians 2.20 says, but on the basis of preference, on the basis of personal desire. Some mainline denominations, there's over 200 denominations in the U.S., 200 divisions. Now, that keeps us from fighting to some degree, but some mainline denominations have recently started to shift in their fundamental belief of what they see the church as, what authority they rely on. Is it the word of God or is it some, some creed, some, some doctrine, some confession? And doctrines and, and confessions and creeds are valuable but this has to be the ultimate authority over our lives. They're even arguing over what is the mission of the church, such that now there's unqualified leadership. Others teaching nothing less than a good talk from a pulpit, from a notable speaker, from gurus. We don't need any more gurus. We need shepherds leading the sheep. Christ said, I am the good shepherd. We need to follow that good shepherd and qualified, appointed leadership under shepherds whom the Holy Spirit has appointed. This is discouraging to think about churches that are going sideways, that are not involved in evangelism and the spread of the gospel worldwide. But there are faithful churches. There are healthy churches. I listen often on Sunday mornings to a preacher who I thought was somewhere else in the world. It turns out on Moody Radio, there's a preacher right here in Grand Rapids who's on the radio every Sunday morning, faithfully preaching the Word of God. It's encouraging. But Americans in our generation find it very difficult to point to what it is that a church is to be. Church to some might just be a building that you meet at. We're going to change the church carpet, the church entrance, the church signage. A physical meeting place, though we do need somewhere to meet. A fortress is how some other people see it, a place to isolate themselves, to protect themselves from the dangers in the world and find protection. Maybe it's a museum to other people where they come and they view relics of the past, where they showcase history. Others, it's just a theater where a production is staged. There's great danger in our generation of the smoke and the lights to entertain people, to tickle their ears with modern fancies and ideas. Others might view the church as a social center, a place to meet people, to network, to, to enlarge business endeavors. A social center is not what the church is. Uh, other, other people come to a, a church in order to find information. They're looking for something, and this is good, but the danger here is that we just collect data. 
we just get the facts. We just need to know more. It's like a history channel for these people. It isn't a building, it isn't a fortress, a museum, a theater, any of those things. These are terrible metaphors for what the church is, and we need to look to what the Bible says is the church. The Bible, the inspired Word of God, He, God in His infinite wisdom has designed and ordained the church to be just what it is and describes it as the flock of God, sheep following the good shepherd. It's also described as, in John 15, the branches abiding, remaining in the vine. God the Father as the vine dresser. It's also an olive tree. The Bible tells us the church is the family of God. We sang about that this morning. We are sons and daughters of the Lord Almighty as our Father and have an inheritance. We are co-heirs with Christ Jesus for those who are called according to his purposes in Christ, those who are redeemed. Galatians 6 says that we're of the household of faith. Galatians also describes us as being adopted as sons. Maybe most well-known is uh, the church being described as the bride of Christ. In the book of Revelation, there will be a wedding feast with the bride of Christ, perfect and holy, is presented to the Father, and Christ is exalted for redeeming those whom he has saved. It's a gift to him. 1 Corinthians 12, just sorry, technological issues. My printer broke last night, so I have to fight a computer. The church is the body of Christ, made up of many members, some with different roles, some with different functions. No one would say, well, my nose isn't quite as important as my ears, so I'll lop it off today. <laughs> we need every member in the body of Christ to fulfill their role, to serve in ways that they are able to, to love one another. You know, there's over 30 one another and each other commands in the New Testament to love one another, serve one another, greet one another with a holy kiss. That's more a reality in some countries than others. The church is also the house of God, not made of bricks and wood, but based on the truth, as we read from 1 Timothy 3, we uphold the truth, and the truth remains throughout all of history. There's two things that remain eternally. That's the church and the word of God. Amen. They'll remain forever. Finally, a couple of years ago when I was here, we opened the word to 1 Peter 2, which describes the church as the temple of God. 1 Peter 2, 4 and 5 says, And coming to him as to a living stone, which has been rejected by people, but it is choice and precious in the sight of God. You also, Peter's talking to a church, a local church, you also are living stones being built up as a spiritual house for a holy priesthood. So there's service to the Lord. Offer up spiritual sacrifices that are acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. So these images in the New Testament help us understand a little bit better. They're metaphors for what the church really and truly is. That's our goal this morning. We need to pray earnestly that the peer would grow in these ways, that we would be a more faithful flock to the good shepherd, that we would serve the Lord in his temple, and that the Lord would be kind to the peer and grow this church 
in the truth, abiding in Christ more, growing in every way according to Christ's likeness, following the good shepherd. Well, we need to look at some other scripture categorically, and then we're going to move into what does the church do? How does the church gather together and worship? But first, I want to just take a few notes from various scripture. Matthew 16. Turn in your Bibles to Matthew 16. If you don't have a Bible, this is, this is so crucial. How do we know what the church is if we're not in the Word learning what God has determined already what the church is? So if you don't have a Bible, Bob's going to pass one out to you or I can hand one to you, but we want to make sure we're in the Word. Anyone? Raise your hand if you'd like a Bible. Excellent. Thank you, Bob. Matthew 16, Jesus is asking Peter, who do you say that I am? And he makes a strong declaration of his Messiahship. Others might say he's one thing or another, but Simon Peter in verse 16 of chapter 16 says, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Wow. Before the resurrection, he knew you are the chosen Messiah. You are the son of the living God. You are truly God. You are truly man. You are able to do all things as the Christ. And Jesus said to him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, because flesh and blood did not reveal this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And then he says this, I also say to you that you are Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of Hades will not overpower it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall have been bound in heaven, and whatever you loose on earth shall have been loosed in heaven. So, he says in verse 18, I will build my church on this rock. Now, whether that rock is Peter and his role in developing the early church after Pentecost, we're going to see in Acts 2, he preached a sermon and 3,000 people were saved. That's pretty significant in the growth of the church. But I would say more likely it is the confession of those who are in Christ Jesus say, you are my only hope, Jesus. You're the Christ. You are the son of the living God. Those who confess Christ have hope in the Lord. The church is the only institution that the Lord promised to build and to bless. He said, I will build my church, and so he has. And so 2,000 years later, we see he is faithful to that promise. He's building his church. He's building his church in Estonia. He's building his church in Croatia. He's building his church in Kazakhstan and Tokyo and Yemen and so many other places around the world that need to hear this gospel Churches are being established so that like a city set on a hill, it's a bright light to the dark places. They will see the love of Christians. They will, they will hear the truth. That's what the salt and light refer to in Matthew 5. They're, they're not just going to see the love of Christ. They're also going to hear the message of the gospel. The church is where true worshipers of God gather. The church is made up of people. The church is truly people. It's not the building. It's not the idea, the institution, the constitution of that entity. It's the actual people. It's 
It's you. It's made up of you and you and you and you together gathering. Philippians 3, Paul says to this church, we are the true circumcision who worship in the spirit of God and take pride in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. They worship together. They gather together so that they can worship together. It is paramount that we value the church. Maybe this isn't emphasized enough in American churches, and that's why so few actually are a part of a church. They might value Christ, but they care little for his church. And that's a grave error, my friends. Paul tells the Ephesian elders in the book of Acts 20, 28, he tells these elders, be on guard for yourselves and for the flock among which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to shepherd the church of God, which he purchased with his own blood. Jesus paid a, a great price for the church. Colossians 1.20 says, through him, he reconciled all things to himself whether things on earth or things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. He went to the cross for the church. That's how the church was established. He redeemed a people unto himself through his sacrifice so that he who knew no sin became sin, that we might become the righteousness of God, that great exchange. And the church was born because of his sacrifice Something great had to be accomplished in order for us to be called out of the world and into his church, his church. There's no rogue Christians. It's a corporate entity. We're together in this. This is just a few other notes. The church is where those born of God find true spiritual fellowship. The church is the proclaimer and protector of divine truth. We already talked about that, and, and I, I think 1 John 4 is so, or sorry, Second uh, John, John tells this, this church, the elder to the chosen lady and her children, whom I love in truth, and not only I, but also all who know the truth, for the sake of the truth which abides in us and will, will be with us forever. Grace, mercy, and peace will be with us from God the Father and from Jesus Christ, the Son of the Father, in truth and love. That's the marks of those who are walking as sons and daughters of the great high king is they're in the truth and they're in love. He says, I was very glad to see some of your children walking in truth, just as we have received commandment to do from the Father. So the church walks in the truth. They're growing in the truth, in the love of Christ Jesus, which is defined by Philippians 2, that sacrificial love, which says, I'm nothing. I have the same mind as everyone else. I'm going to humble myself, and I'm going to exalt others. That's, that's biblical love. We don't just set aside the truth in the name of love. The church is the proclaimer and protector of divine truth. It's also where we grow and are edified 
as we read this morning from Ephesians 4, so fitting that we are called to grow, to become mature. The leadership of the church was given to the church for the equipping of the saints. We're to be equipped, to be given a toolbox how to grow up in Christ for the building up of the body of Christ. That's the goal. We want to grow. We want to pursue holiness. We want to become more like our Savior, Jesus Christ. We will grow in the church. The church is also the launch pad for world evangelism. It's where we not just grow up so that we might have a bigger head, so that we might just know spiritual things, that we might just love one another well, but that we leave these doors, we leave this place, and we go and we tell a lost and dying world about what God has done for us. He's transformed our lives, and they can transform theirs as well. The church is also the environment where strong spiritual leadership is developed. Now, we have seminaries and Bible colleges to assist in those ways where there are many brilliant people out there, but it's right here where we want to grow up, spur one another on towards love and good deeds, and out of some of the maturity of the body of Christ, some will even aspire to leadership and be appointed as elders and deacons within the church. So these are helpful notes on what the church is. I just want to come back to that first one, that the church is the primary means which God is accomplishing His will here on earth. He didn't choose parachurch ministries which come and go uh, for various purposes to, to aid in, in many ways in, in our society. It's through the church that the Word of God is taught that it's preached, that people put their trust in Christ and are born again to a living hope. It's through the church that saints are ministered to and are sanctified, and it's through the church that the world will see God's light, understand who he is, and put their trust in him. So we might just say that the church exists to exalt God, to edify the saints, and to evangelize the lost. That's our hope, is that our church would do that. That this church, that my church, that that church, we pray that all churches would truly exalt God, the God of the Bible, exactly who he says he is in no other way. That we would be edified and grow. Grow according to what God has said. The, the great commission which he gave us. Believers who are of the church obey the Great Commission, making disciples. Yes, they go. But in going, their task is to make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit so they identify with Christ's work and resurrection and eternal hope. And then verse 20, teaching them. We need to be a church that teaches, teaches them to observe all that I commanded you, and there's hope. I am with you always to the end of the age. At this point, we merely have a long introduction to what the church is. 
The church is made up of Christians, gatherings attended by many. So there's the universal church. All the believers in the world make up Christ's church, and he will gather them to himself in the end. But specifically, it's manifested in the local expressions, local churches, which have appointed leadership, which baptize, which has a body made up of various gifts, led by qualified leadership, preaching the word faithfully, submitting to its authority, Holy Spirit empowerment in the church so that we might understand what Scripture says and help each other to grow in godliness. The church is a group of people redeemed by God's grace. They gather together. They worship the Lord together. They scatter to reach the lost. We can't live without the church. And so another definition might be the church is indispensable. The organized gathering of God's people brought together to grow in grace, to worship together with appointed leadership and obey Christ's great commission. Now, there's a lot of other things we could talk about what the church is, its leadership, the the challenges of persecution, membership, ordinances, church discipline, but we need to move on. I'd like to open up our Bibles to Acts 2, so turn over to Acts 2. This is the very first church, as I mentioned. This is in Jerusalem. The day of Pentecost has come. Peter has faithfully preached the fulfillment of the Old Testament in Jesus Christ. And 3,000 people put their trust in Christ that day. Church, first we need to understand that this is what God has instituted for us to grow, to evangelize effectively. It's not done on our own. Let's appreciate that. We want to turn our attention now to what does the church do? Simply hours after Pentecost, a message of the gospel has been preached. Their response was to identify publicly with Jesus and be baptized. And we're going to pick it up in verse 37. Read with me now. Acts 2.37 to the end. Now, when they heard this, the message of the gospel, they were pierced to the heart and said to Peter and the rest of the apostles, Brethren, what shall we do? Peter said to them, Repent, and each of you be baptized in the name of Jesus Christ for the forgiveness of your sins, and you will receive the gift of the Holy Spirit. For the promise is for you and your children and for all who are far off, as many as the Lord our God will call to himself. And with many other words, he solemnly testified and kept on exhorting them, saying, be saved from this perverse generation. So then those who had received his word were baptized. And that day there were added about 3,000 souls. They were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching and to fellowship, to the breaking of bread, and to prayer. Everyone kept feeling a sense of awe, and many wonders and signs were taking place through the apostles. And all those who had believed were together 
and had all things in common. And they began selling their property and possessions and were sharing with them with all as anyone might have need. Day by day, continuing with one mind in the temple, breaking bread from house to house, they were taking their meals together with gladness and sincerity of heart, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord was adding to their number day by day those who were being saved. So my goal this morning, having established a bit of what the church is according to the Word of God, is now to focus our attention on these very first Christians and what they did. They worshipped. The church worships in their gathering. And there are three specific ways I want to point to you in verse 42 that they worshipped corporately. First, they worshipped in the Word. Verse 42 says, they were continually devoting themselves to the apostles' teaching. This is the word didache, a word for teaching that could be used doctrine. I don't know what your translation might say, but it's the truth. It would have included specifically, of course, the teaching from the, the Old Testament. These are these are brand new believers after the resurrection, just 50 days after Christ was resurrected from the dead. So they would have had the Old Testament as Scripture. It would have also included anything that the Lord Jesus Christ himself taught the apostles. And the New Testament hadn't been written yet, so it would have largely been the Old Testament teachings from Jesus and about him, such as the Sermon on the Mount, Olivet Discourse, important conversations they had as Jesus would pull them aside and teach them. And this instruction, this teaching that the apostles gave, they would stand or fall on what they believed. Do you remember the church in Galatia? There were other teachings going on, not the apostles. And Paul tells the church in Galatia, who's bewitched you? Why are you believing another gospel? It's not even a gospel. It's just another, another good talk. We don't need more good talks. We need the truth. To the Colossians, Paul also warns them about the wisdom and the, the human traditions of the world. Jesus mentioned the importance of teaching. In the Great Commission, as I already mentioned, he says, we need to teach them. We need to teach them. Don't just make converts, make disciples who follow Jesus and obey all that he commanded. From the epistles written in our New Testament, we often have the first half teaching doctrine, teaching us who we are in Christ, all that he's accomplished, and then the second half will be the practical stuff. Now then, how should we live? We're born again. Now, how do we live as children of God? Both are important, but the teaching has to be there. Out of theology comes praxology or practical living. So they were devoted to the apostles' teaching because it would have been so crucial to laying a foundation for their lives. It might have been in a large gathering. It might have been as they went house to house, but they were continually devoting themselves, not just in sermons, but also sharing testimonies of how God had given them grace, private gatherings. 
So I ask you, as a church, not just in your own personal life, but together, do you devote yourselves to the apostles' teaching, to all that the Lord has given us, now with the New Testament completed as well? Do we base our fellowship around truth or Go lions, but what are the lions doing today? You know, it, we, there's, there's more important things in life than some of the mundane, the trivial things of our world. They devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching because that's the basis on which they were established as a church. Do we desire to learn and grow and understand more of what God has given us in his revealed word? That was... His, Paul's prayer to the Colossians that they would grow in all spiritual wisdom and understanding. That's my prayer for you. Secondly, it says they devoted themselves to fellowship and the breaking of bread. And I'm going to lump those two together because with the breaking of bread, which certainly would have included communion, they were together in fellowship. There is no fellowship in the breaking. If, if you cannot break bread with somebody and come to the Lord's table together, then you don't have fellowship. So there's, there's fellowship and the breaking of bread. It's all very similar in nature. This church was not yet formalized. They didn't have appointed elders and deacons, as I mentioned. They were still under the apostles' leadership, but they would become the church. And these are certainly born-again believers who worshipped in unity and fellowship. They were of the same mind. They didn't neglect the gatherings. They didn't, they didn't forsake one another. They knew each other's needs well enough to take care of each other. Let's look at 44 and 45. It says, all those who had believed, now they were just receivers. They received a word back in verse 41. Now they're believers. They received it, now they believe it. Verse 44, all those who had believed were together and they had all things in common. They had all things in common. They believed the same thing. There was unity in the truth that they were taught about the Lord. Now, as you look around this room, you might say, what commonality do we have outside of Christ? Some of you are bankers. Some of you before Christ you are great athletes, electricians, professors. You were maybe of different political opinions, right? Uh, holding different economic statuses, different backgrounds. Some of you know different languages. But the difference is that when we come together, we have all things in common in Christ Jesus. And on that day, 3,000 people in a large city of Jerusalem came together, heard a sermon, and their lives were forever changed. And they were unified in Christ Jesus and what he accomplished on the cross. And that's the same reality for everyone in this room, that in Christ Jesus, we have all things in common. We all are sinners. We all are hopeless without a Savior, someone who could be that perfect substitute for us someone who would die in our place and appease the wrath of God, someone who would give us all of his righteousness. We all know that story because it's our story and it's your story and it's your story and it's your story. And maybe it's not your story and you need to make that your story and put your trust in Jesus today. 
But for those of you who are the church of Christ, his bride, something changed when he forgave your sins and trespasses. You were dead. We were all dead in our trespasses and sins. But God made us alive in Christ Jesus. A single event changed all of that, and now we are of the same mind. And just as we read in Ephesians 4, we want to maintain the unity of the bonds of peace because we do have all things in common in Christ Jesus. Look at verse 45. In their unity and fellowship, they were also very generous. They began selling their property, possessions. They were sharing them with all as anyone might have need. It was voluntary. It was generous. It was focused on the benefits of others. They didn't say, well, I was going to buy that boat next month, but now <sighs> God had been so benevolent towards them. Gave up everything. Christ went to the cross. Even death did not hold back his love. He gave it all. And their kindness overflows, extends to others, even to those outside the church, such that it says that they had favor with all the people. And yes, favor with all those in the church. They were sharing each other's uh, resources with so that any might have need. But people outside the church were coming to Christ. They were putting their faith in Christ because of this generosity. It says, and the Lord was adding to their number day by day. There was a result, a fruitfulness because of their generosity. Now, that doesn't mean you literally need to go sell your house, give every single penny of that, that, that asset and, and distribute it all to anyone. We need to be good stewards of what we have. But it says at the end of verse 45, as anyone might have need. This is why we have a benevolence offering, so we can take care of one another. That's why when there's a storm, we all pitch in, go get our chainsaws, and we go help a brother. They continued with one mind to gather together. They were united in the truth. They had the mind of Christ now because they had spiritual eyes to see spiritual things, and they had a united mentality that you're more important than I am, and you're more important than I am, and this church is more important than my individual needs and desires, just as God in Christ first loved me. Who am I? I'm what might some call junk. I'm broken. I'm garbage. I'm a garbage decision in God's eyes, but by the grace of God. And that's what you all are as well. And that's how we treat each other. With all grace, caring for one another. Love is so countercultural when we think of it the way that Jesus thought of it. Humbling ourselves. Do you fellowship well? Is this body thinking about the needs of others, continually gathering together, wanting to be with each other, going from house to house, involved in each other's lives. It may not happen that 3,000 souls are converted to believe in the name of Jesus because of your love for one another, 
but you're probably praying for one soul. You're probably praying for a brother, for a friend, for a coworker, and we pray that because of your love for one another, they might see that and put their faith in Jesus. Okay, the last one here, it says that they devoted themselves to prayer. They devoted themselves to prayer. That's why we have a worship meeting from 9 to 9.45, and we pray before the services because this is an important work of God that he's doing. It's not our work. It's not our work. If any one of us thinks that this is, this is our work, then we might as well be starting a business. This is a spiritual endeavor that only God can complete to change the hearts of men and to grow us more into Christ-likeness. Prayer is our desperate plea that God would be faithful. Prayer is a loving adoration for who he is. We call out to God to save those who are not yet his. Prayer is our humble dependence on him who is able. Prayer is the means by which God accomplishes his work. You might say, God is totally able without me praying. But yes, but he wants you to depend on him. And then when he does it, you say, thank you. So much to be grateful for to a holy God. Do you pray, church? A whole sermon could be given just on this subject, of course. We need to gather together to lift up our request to God, to praise him. Our gatherings are not just to accomplish some task to get through a list of songs, to get the teaching, to sing the song, to go eat lunch. We gather to devote ourselves to this word. We gather to be unified in Christ Jesus. We are one. We gather to pray because we still desperately need him who is able. There's so many other things here we could observe in this passage. Worshiping from the heart, submitting to church leadership, worship in giving as a church, and you're probably givers. Being in awe of a God who saves, we worship in adoration. We worship in evangelism, reaching the lost. We worship in hospitality. You can't meet from house to house if you don't open up your own home. So let's do a good job of uh, just clean up the dining room table. Who cares about all the other things? Invite each other over. It's about the people. The church met in homes often, sharing meals, living life side by side. And of course, involved in this is the Lord's Supper and remembering what the Lord did for us. So, dear church, do you love the gospel? First, are you a Christian? Let's, let's, let's establish what is a Christian. It's those who are called, according to God's purposes, in Christ Jesus because of what he accomplished at the cross. Those who have forsaken all of those this world has to offer, the idols in the world, the idols in our own heart, turning from them to the living God and saying, yes, Lord, only you, and following him all the days of our life. And all of those people are gathered together into his church to pray, to evangelize, to love one another in unity and fellowship, to be devoted to the apostles' teaching. I hope we have that heart.
And I want to pray with you now that this would be so. Father in heaven, you are the God of all creation. You're the God who is gracious and kind and also a God of justice. We know that in as much as it is appointed unto man to die once and then after that to face judgment. And so we pray, Lord, that mindful of your perfect justice, we would, we would be zealous to the lost, that they would be born again, received into your church, adopted as sons. And Lord, that your church would continue. Lord, be faithful to this church. Grow them. Make disciples here that are radical servants of you to this lost and dying world. We pray that you would be high and lifted up, that the head would be exalted high above the body, that the shepherd would be honored above the sheep, that the name of Jesus would be glorified, and that we, your servants, would just enjoy the blessings that come and give glory to you. In Jesus' name we pray, amen. I just want to add that there are so many books, good books, on what is the church. Uh, I don't have time to give a little library promotion, but if you're a reader, you want to take a look at some of the books that I brought on what is the church, learn great things about the Lord's church. Amen.